Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists set its doomsday clock yesterday. The clock is a metaphor for how close we are to catastrophe. The Bulletin opted to leave the hands where they were at two minutes to midnight, but don't take that as good news. With me is Rachel Bronson, president and CEO at The Bulletin. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Good to talk with you. Good to talk with you, Jerome. Um, what can you give us a little background? This is the seventy-second year you, the bulletin, has been doing this, and um, you answer a couple of key questions when you sit down and try to assess whether or not to to move the hands. Uh, can you give us the little lowdown on that? Yeah, thanks, Jerome. Yeah, we've been doing it for seventy-two years, and when uh, when our science and security board comes together, they come together in person in Chicago in in November and and start in person talking through uh, the time and what we're trying to convey with it. And they answered two really important questions. The first is: Is civilization safer or at greater risk this year than it compared to last year? And then, is civilization safer or greater risk this year? compared to the over seven decades that we've been looking at this question. So we know that it's both kind of a a marker of where we are compared to last year, but really how does this fit in the broader context of of the last 70 plus years? And the two minutes to midnight, the not moving is, um, is what, how did, what does that say in the context of the 72 years? Yeah, so the closest has ever been to midnight is two minutes to midnight. And the uh, only time it's been at two minutes to midnight, uh, other than uh, recent times now, is in 1953. So in 1953, it was moved to two minutes to midnight after the Russians and the U.S. had both tested hydrogen bombs. So the clock started in 1947 at seven minutes to midnight. It moved closer to midnight after the Soviets tested their atomic weapon, and then it moved to two minutes to midnight in 1953. And in uh, 2007, you started to fold in uh, climate change and disruptive technologies and all the other things that, that we have today to consider. Yeah, that's right. And it comes down to those basic questions, Jerome. So um, for much of our history, um, the clock was was focused on nuclear risk and nuclear war, and it, it was it was created in that context. Um, but it was it was created in the context of of uh, a sense of the end of the world coming uh, to an end, or the world coming to an end, and in a way that you can imagine with uh, nuclear weapons. Um, and that's kind of horrifying enough. Um, but in 2007, after about a decade of, of debate, um, they basically the, the Science and Security Board came to this conclusion that you can't a- answer these questions as humanity safer at greater risk without including climate change. And it kind of goes back to our founding. Our founders were very much focused on what they then called Pandora's box of modern science, that this huge opportunity and benefits that science would have uh, was accompanied by great risk. And humans and people had to to get involved and make sure that there was policies and frameworks to keep us safe. And so um, looking at all these issues, we just no longer could answer the questions, are we safe or at greater risk without including climate change? We look at other um, disruptive technologies. None have factored directly into the clock move, although over the last couple of years, and in this report as well, we do 
point to an intentional use of information warfare that undermines kind of reason and make it, we see, we call it a threat multiplier uh, because right. it makes dealing with nuclear and climate that much harder. I'm talking with Rachel Bronson, president and CEO at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, and we're talking about the doomsday clock. They opted to leave the hands at two minutes to midnight, the closest they've ever been, and we got uh, some ideas from listeners about what they thought about whether we are safer or not as safe as before. And with us on the line is Andrew Levin, an educator and WBEZ listener. Thanks for calling us, Andrew. Thank you so much. Um, I uh, want to ask uh, just essentially two questions, um, and um, I guess maybe I'll ask them both, and then we can get some responses here. Um, the two areas of concern for me is, one, I've noticed that uh, Donald Trump is now proposing these additional uh, missile defenses, and at first I kind of felt this was maybe a good thing. But I have been reading some experts who said this could actually be a destabilizing force, and I wanted to know your opinion on that. The other one is, while nuclear is very clear, or maybe it isn't, but it, it typically, traditionally, has been very clear, you know, a nuclear war would be zero. With climate change, my worry is that are we already at zero, and we're just waiting for the effects to happen? I hope that is, of course, not the case. But with such a long-lasting effect where carbon dioxide and some of these other um, gases take decades to fully um, take effect in the atmosphere, um, that might be a really big risk. All right. Uh, Rachel, do you have some thoughts on that? I do. And thank you for those two really excellent questions. Um, the first on uh, on missile defense, um, it, 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 the notion behind missile defense is very attractive, and it's understandable uh, why um, you and others would see this as a good thing, right? It speaks to our ability to defend ourselves, and we should all be able to defend ourselves. But the reason experts um, have really over the decades been very skeptical and worried and seen missile defense as destabilizing, um, especially the way the U.S. is currently proposing it, is because um, it won't work. Um, the way that the defense shield is, is um, being created it prompts the other side to just create decoys. It's very easy to fool, fool these systems. And the more robust you build them, the more decoys you put, um, the, the other side puts into play. And so what it ends up doing is giving this false sense that you can defend against nuclear weapons. And it, it, anyone who looks at it at the technical level, it is very hard to see how that's at all possible. It, and so it, it ends up putting you into an, a very, very expensive arms race that we've been in before, rather than a realization that it's futile. And the key to not having a nuclear war is very good uh, set of relations between the nuclear states, as well as an effort to reduce reliance on nuclear weapons. And correct me if I'm wrong, Rachel, but the technology in missile defense can also sometimes be used for offensive purposes. And when you deploy it, other countries get antsy about it being offensive, not defensive. And China is a country that does that right now. And at your press conference yesterday, you talked about uh, they think we're starting an arms race in Asia with missile defense. And, you know, Russia thinks we're starting an arms race in space. Everybody thinks we're starting an arms race with new moves. Well, I mean, so yes, but the point is, 
is, and this is what an arms race looks like, right? The administration will come out, the U.S. administration will say, we are responding to what the Russians and the Chinese are doing. Um, and so, and then they will respond to say, well, we're, we are responding to what you are doing. This is the dynamics of an arms race that arms controllers have been working to reverse for decades and had been quite successful by the time we got to the 90s. What we've seen is the end of this um, belief and reliance on arms control um, and and both sides between the U.S. and Russia can be faulted. Um, Andrew, what would what would you have done with the hands in the clock? What would you would you have moved them? Well, you know, it, it, again, I um, I think well, in part because I, I teach history, I think historically. Um, when I find that, like, uh, 1960s, when the, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was at seven minutes to midnight, um, in my mind, unless, you know, the answer to my second question is we're too late on climate change, which I hope is not true, I would probably either leave it where it is or move it back a minute. Um, because I think, while there's always a risk of a nuclear war, sadly, the risk seems smaller now than it did during, say, the Cuban Missile Crisis. All right. What do you think of that rationale, Rachel? Yeah. So two quick things. I wanted to be, answer his second question on climate change, which is, it, is it too late? Now, where our climate scientists uh, are right now is it's very urgent that we pay significant attention to addressing climate change now. And if, uh, I think it was 2016 when we moved it from five or 2015 when we moved it from uh, five to three minutes to midnight, a large part of that was to draw attention to climate. That was a big part of that move because, Andrew, to your point, um, it's urgent. They still believe that there is time to react, but the longer we take, the harder and more expensive it will be. And they do feel we're running out of time. So, so they wouldn't put it past midnight yet. And we were just in conversations on this yesterday, but they're very concerned about the accumulation of of carbon emissions and what those emit, and that the fact that those emissions, after a couple of years of plateauing, are going up again globally. You know, when I to think your point, when, ahead, I, when I think about it, I I think that the climate stuff has been so bad this last year. All the data, all of, you know, the U.S. data, the U.N. data, the uh, carbon going up—that's been bad. But the good thing that happened in the last year was uh, the tensions with North Korea went down. They didn't go down in a way that feels permanent or anything, but it was very significant. I, I, I guess did people figure, well, this is a wash, you know, climate change got worse, North Korea got better. There was something that it got better, right? So um, I think it, it wasn't really a wash, but we we point out in the report itself the the fact that we did think it was a good thing that tensions between North Korea and the U.S. were reduced because of our concern of blunder and accident into a nuclear exchange. Uh, a very tense rhetoric and the kind of relations we had with North Korea a year ago was very daunting. What we point out in the report is that the the dangers of on the peninsula remain, and we haven't had any substantive move to either denuclearization or a new kind of arms control arrangement. So we do point out to the fact the fact that it was a good thing that we had that reduction, but we are concerned, and you see it in a statement we released in June that nothing substantive substantive has been done to reduce that nuclear threat. 
Um, and so when going back to, to what Andrew was saying about, you know, what time it is, and, and perhaps on the nuclear side, we can be further away um, from midnight. I can tell you um, where we are is we don't believe that it, uh, we are um, that far away from midnight because the situation that we're in now um, is has a number of key factors on the nuclear side, which is what he raised. One is the the complete breakdown between uh, U.S. Russian negotiations discussions at any level. Um, we are very concerned about that. That there's not military to the kinds of military to military discussions that we should be having, or parliamentary to parliamentary. Any of those is very concerning to us. The second is the usability of nuclear weapons. For the first time, we're seeing a return to the sense that nuclear weapons might actually be used or could be used. So the Russians have built that into their military training to use these weapons and, and, and uh, a sense of they're, they call it escalate to de-escalate. Um, in the U.S., we saw the um, um, the, new, uh, the recent review that the administration put out that suggested uh, times that we might use nuclear weapons. So we're, we're eroding this norm that they're not usable. And the huge new investments are going into uh, nuclear arsenals around the world in a way that we haven't seen um, since the height of the Cold War and a return to believing that we need to invest not only to keep the, these uh, weapons um, secure and reliable, but really um, uh, to create whole new arsenals. So in many ways, what we are seeing right now is the return to a Cold War that we've experienced and we know how wasteful and dangerous that is. And now we're in a multi-state. It's not just a bipolar uh, nuclear world. We're in a multipolar nuclear landscape, and that makes it all more, all the more complicated and dangerous. Well, thank you, Andrew Levin, for your call and participation in whether or not we move the clock uh, forward or backwards. And I wanted to get another person in. Uh, Bob is a retired uh, high school science teacher, and he is from Elburn, and he had some thoughts, and we recorded Bob's remarks. What we're seeing is uh, a preponderance of scientific data is coming in that's being ignored by our government, uh, by our corporations, where the rest of the world is saying, hey, wait, we need to do something about that, but we're not doing it. I mean, if we keep heading the way we're going, we're going to be somewhere we don't want to be. I'm not looking for um, a war, as we feared in the 50s, that would point in our civilization, but I'm very concerned about ecosystem collapse coupled with global warming. I think we'll, we'll get to the point where we'll just be on a slide that we can no longer stop, that as we have gone past the tipping point, that things would pick up and um, accelerate much more rapidly. As a teacher, I know things that I can't really sometimes say to my students. My concerns and things like that would uh, not be very good for them to take home with. That was Bob from Elburn. He answered our call online for thoughts on the doomsday clock, and you can answer questions, too, at wbez.org slash worldview. Um, do you have a response to that, Rachel? What do you think about the, the idea of uh, uh, moving the clock beyond uh, beyond midnight? 
Yeah, I think um, it's a similar response that I, I just had to the previous caller. And I did want to say if he wants to talk more about missile defense, I'm happy to do that. And he should reach out to me at the bulletin. Um, in terms of the, the teacher, I, the science teacher, I, um, I think the current environment in which we are speaks to our desperate need for um, him to stay in the fight with his students on this, the need to um, to encourage both scientific literacy and apply that to public policy. And that's exactly what the bulletin was founded to do, was to engage the public on these issues, to bring the facts to bear so we can debate this um, and discuss it smartly. I know on our board what we are recognizing on the climate front is um, in a sense, when he used the term tipping point, this rec people are starting to come around on climate change uh, more than they had in the past because they're seeing the effects of it. And we believe there is there is still time. Um, but the, the longer we wait and some of the administration's current policies of really undermining scientific findings based on U.N. reports that they they supported or their own findings in the administration, are very very troubling, but that's something that we that we you know with our our votes can take care of if if we believe that science matters we need to advocate it we need to support it um, and we need to demand it and um, we're set out to do that and a host of other organizations are as well and um, we'd all you know and we we all need to kind of band together at at this moment when when the challenge is facing us and the globe. Are change, and science is changing so quickly, we need to support scientific li literacy and being able to bring that to bear on public policies. Rachel Bronson is president and CEO at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. They set the doomsday clock yesterday and left it at two minutes to midnight. You can get more information and see the press conference from yesterday at, the, at thebulletin.org. And thanks very much for joining us, Rachel Bronson. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, film contributor Milos Stalik talks with Polish filmmaker Paweł Pawlikowski. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Film contributor Milo Stalik of Facets interviews the world's great filmmakers here on Worldview. This week, Milo speaks with Polish director Paweł Pawlikowski, whose new film, Cold War, has received more Academy Award nominations than any Polish film ever. In theaters for its second week, Cold War tells the story, a love story that spans 15 years in Poland and France. I want to start out with you and take you back five years to when you made Ida or Ida. And you said about this, which is very unusual and very direct. And it's a quote said, let's be honest, Ida had no commercial prospects, even in festivals, because I know how hard it is for Polish films to break into Cannes, Venice, and Berlin. When I said that I was doing the film in Poland, in Polish, and in black and white, my friends decided that I was committing professional harakiri. And of course... Uh, your friends were proven absolutely wrong because you won 
the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Picture, the first Polish filmmaker to win an Academy Award. The film became a worldwide success. Uh, it dealt with very serious issues. And now you've gone back to Poland or remained in Poland and made another film in black and white, which again deals and goes back to Polish history in some way, a film called Cold War. So what happened? Yeah, obviously the formula of black and white and Polish and history works. So, okay. so okay. I did another one. Well, not quite, not quite. I mean, basically, you know, I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm of a certain age. So I, even with Ida, although it sounded like a professional harakiri to some, I wasn't too bothered because, I, you know, I've lived my life. I've made some films. So I just tried to make films about things that are, and characters that interest me. And... And in a way which I think is, you know, most appropriate, so black and white, academy format, whatever. And, uh, of course, Ida and its surprising success uh, encouraged me to, you know, to be even bolder and, and encourage some investors to spend a bit bit more money. I mean, it's not a huge money, the, the budget of the new film, but it's, you know, it's more expensive than Ida and it's a more complicated production. So basically, you know, the, both the stories are stories I've been developing or carrying with me for a long time. And, um, and it's all to do with where, you know, which story you want to tell at, at, at a certain moment in your life, you know. So the story of Cold War, it kind of has been with me for over a decade in some shape or form. It's so difficult to make a film. It takes like three years of your life, the whole package. So you better really want to tell it, you know, and this is a story I've been wanting to tell for a while. And part of the ambition of Cold War is that it takes place across a span of 15 years. It's kind of a Romeo and Juliet love story set against the backdrop of the Iron Curtain and the Cold War divisions. And and at the heart of it is music. Music became the kind of the the third character in the film and the, the two protagonists are both um, musicians of a different kind. Um, so music is what brings them together, and music is what keeps them together, and music keeps commenting and showing where they are in the relationship and where we are in, in history, because the film spans 15 years, and the music evolves with the different times and places that we, we put into the film. So when the film opens, we are in the countryside and this group of, uh, I guess you would call them music ethnologists, are recording the local folk songs. And this becomes the foundation for a school named uh, Mazurek, which uh, produces young people who are trained in these folklore, dancing and musical traditions. And then there's a love story because a young kind of contradictory character named Zula comes in, fakes her way into the school and falls in love and vice versa with the music teacher whose name is Victor. The framework of the story, this folk ensemble, I took it from a really existing one, uh, a Polish folk ensemble that was founded in 1949. They were called Mazowsze. And it started with this couple of... uh, characters, husband and wife, in fact, who went around the countryside collecting folk tunes, collecting costumes or ideas for costumes, and then turning that into a a kind of a structured dance, song and dance school, and a performing ensemble. 
And just as I showed in the film, very quickly they became co-opted by the Ministry of Culture, obedient to the Stalinist uh, dogma of socialist realism. They were co-opted to represent the people's art, to become the visiting card of socialist Poland, uh, which favors uh, the art of the people from the countryside, as opposed to the decadent art of the West, in other words, jazz, atonal music, and whatnot. So that much I kind of took from uh, from research and from just knowledge, common knowledge, about Mazovsha, the, the folk ensemble that really existed and that still exists. Also from this folk ensemble, I, I chose uh, three songs from the repertoire that, that accompany us throughout the whole film. Well, and then what? Then, and then what happens is exactly what you were just talking about: is that Victor, the teacher, cannot accept being pushed into this socialist way of corrupting the the music that he feels close to, in a way. And so then he decides to emigrate, and the two lovers are separated by a very long time. And then we switch to the other side of music, which is which is also a kind of a folk music, and I guess you could say, which is jazz in 1950s in France. Yes, and what I wanted to do is to to make sure that it's exactly the same tunes that we heard first performed by primitive local artists, uh, the source music, then which is developed by the folk ensemble. In Paris, we 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 go back to these three same tunes, but already one is a bebop number, one is a kind of jazzy chanson, uh, in fact, two is a jazzy chanson. So so you see the evolution of the same tunes in in, in different in different styles. Um, but also fitting in with the with the moment in history and the place in which we find them. And Paris, of course, at the time was a you know was the epicenter of of jazz. You know, a lot of great musicians came to to Paris to play jazz in in the famous club Le Tabou. In our film, there was a club called L'Eclipse because I didn't want to you know follow exactly what happened. But um, but again, you know that that music brings Paris to life for me. That's 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 the time of kind of post-war austerity Paris that was vibrant with, with good music. And I wanted to, um, to tap into that. And what's interesting is that both of these lovers are kind of contradictory, conflicted characters because despite the strength of their relationship, they, in many ways, find it very hard to make the transition and commit to each other. Well, they're very... I mean, everything's stacked up against them. You know, they come from very different backgrounds. He's sort of upper middle class, educated, pre-war family, urban family. She comes from a small town, the wrong side of tracks, you know, with not much, not much culture, acquired culture, uh, and with a big chip on the shoulder. But at the same time, she's strong and a survivor, and you know, she'll do whatever it takes. Whereas he is, um, you know, more of a gentle flower. Uh, and um, not only are they from different backgrounds, but also like temperamentally, they're totally different. You know, she's um, she's uh, dynamic, lively, full of full of urges. You know, sudden desires to do something, and then she acts on that on these desires. He's much more repressed, in t- in- inward, um, and uh, an intellectual. So everything's kind of uh, stacked up against them. Plus history. I mean, in in, in Poland. The relationship is contaminated by the fact that she. I won't spoil the story, but she is. Uh, um, yeah, but she. You know, she. She basically has no problems with communism, with Stalinism, you know, and. 
pounding her way into this job in the folk ensemble is the this job is the best thing she could hope for, you know, so she's pretty happy to be there and she'll do anything to keep that job, and literally anything. Whereas he, in communist Poland, is suffocating. He knows it's all wrong. He knows he's making wrong choices, that he's betraying his his traditions, he's betraying his friends, you know, he's forced to do stuff he doesn't believe in. So they find themselves in very different places. So there are many reasons why it, it shouldn't work work out between them. And it doesn't. Then in exile, again, he feels he's much more in tune with it, with the Parisian salon life. He speaks French. He's trying to fit in. He's not entirely at home there, but he's like doing his best. Whereas she comes, Zula comes into the salons, feeling totally inadequate, feeling angry that she has to be there at all. As a result, she behaves very, in a very kind of uh, arrogant. Uh, superior way, which is quite funny at times, uh, or she just gets drunk and just tries to forget the whole thing. So they react to exile very differently. Also in exile, she sees that he's not the man that he was in Poland, or he's not the man that she saw in Poland. And here he's much less of a of a of a solitary genius and a, 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 and a man in charge of stuff. Here he's trying to fit in with a highly developed, sophisticated, pretentious, at times, French social life. And he's, in her eyes, a bit creepy. So suddenly she loses her respect for him. So all sorts of things happen which, uh, which make the relationship very tricky and uh, makes it, make it fall apart several times in the film. Uh, and it's not just Stalinism in Poland. It's, it's, it's life in exile. It's the basic fact that we change in, when we're in different places, in different cultures, at different moments in our lives, we're different people. So it's very difficult for a relationship with these floating characters, for the relationship to be really solid. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milos Stelic speaking with filmmaker Pavel Pavlikovsky, whose new film is called Cold War. Uh, the choice of the actors that you made for uh, that, that you took for this for the two characters, Tomasz Kot, who at one point was going to play the villain uh, in a, the new James Bond film by Danny Boyle, and Joanna Klug, with whom you worked for three times. So, how did you match, find them, and match their personalities and work with with them? When there's always this tension that's going back and forth between them. Yes, I needed them to be very 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 different and to be like from different novels you know to characters that don't really match and yet they're so different that that in itself seems to be the attraction basically i when i was writing the story um i was, I was thinking of of joanna who i'd worked with a couple of times before who i've known as a friend for almost 10 years she seemed pretty close to the character uh that i was thinking thinking of thinking up yeah, I was pretty close to to what I remember my mother being like, strangely. Uh, and and also I knew that she could sing beautifully, so you know, she 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 had she ticked many many boxes. Um, whereas with the lead actor, I basically to start with, I was looking for musicians, not necessarily actors, but musicians, because I wanted the music scenes to be totally convincing and have a certain magic and flow that is difficult to achieve when people are not actually musicians. Um, but that was difficult, so uh, so then I turned to actors, and then by far the most uh, appropriate actor was Tomasz Kot, because he, I wanted somebody who doesn't feel as if he's of today. I wanted somebody 
a little timeless, or to be more precise, to be like a hero from a 50s movie, you know, like uh, one of these leading men in in, um, in, in the old in the 50s cinema, Some, somebody like, um, you know, uh, not Clark Gable, but uh, Gregory Peck, you know, that kind of that kind of presence, and somebody who's not of today. In other words, somebody who's manly but not macho, who is, um, who's experienced things, who's gone through the war, you know, you can see that. And Thomas has that quality, that kind of pre-war quality, and it's very difficult to find such, such actors today. I was thinking this morning that even though Cold War is culturally very specific and very quite authentic because it's set post-war, 1950s, Poland, France. So we have these very specific situations, and certainly the story of uh, Victor and Jula, the two main characters, is very specific. At the same time, this is a very contemporary and universal theme, because if you think about it, every migration or, or these immigration and migration stories are repeated worldwide a million times over. Yeah, yes, and so many couples find themselves in similar situations, you know, situations which involve separation for a long time and then loving each other only in in your head, you know, imagining the other as this kind of incredible person and then and then meeting after a long break and discovering it's not quite the person you built up in your head and then living in a foreign environment where you don't quite know the rules of the game and uh and that has an impact on your character and on the relationship. I think that's a familiar, yeah, that's a familiar experience. You know, and generally I try to, you know, I like I like setting my stories in historical context and in time and place where history really impacts on your behavior and on your relationship. But I always try to look at the universals, you know, things which are really timeless. You know, so the story is not just dealing with an issue or with a uh, you know, historical situation, but these with bigger existential themes. And there are many themes. There's, it's a film about faith, it's a film about love, about identity, about guilt, about Stalinism, about jazz, about rock and roll, about nationalism. I mean, all of these factors are, are someplace in the, in the scheme of the film. Yes, but I never foreground any one of them. You know, I, I think... What drives it is the emotional journey of uh, the two characters, but all these other things keep resonating, you know, so that's, that's the ideal situation for me. I really don't like when people are tackling historical issues or issues full stop, you know, because then somehow the characters become one-dimensional and just became, become illustrations of, of some thesis you know, or something you want to explain to the audience, whereas I'm not trying to explain anything. I'm trying to bring to life a certain world but through very alive characters and relationships. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stelik. I've been speaking with filmmaker Pavel Pavlikovsky, whose new film is called The Cold War. Thank you very much. Thank you, Milos. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and it's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend Nari Safavi makes recommendations on things you can do about town to have an international good time. It's great to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here. And we're going to Sweden and the bombing that happened there over, over a decade ago into the mind of a potential terrorist, maybe not 
who is a Swedish Arab. So this is a new play, I Call My Brothers, and it's in uh, theaters now, and we've got a couple of the participants. Salar Artabili is here. He's a Chicago-based actor and an ensemble member with Intro Bang Theater Project. Um, nice to meet you. Thanks nice for joining us. As is Gloria um, um, Petrilli. She is a Chicago-based actor. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Um, tell me about the theater company, first of all. Uh, Intro Bang? I, I, I just ran. I never pronounced that. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Yes, um, Intero Bang Theater Intero Project. Bang. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, we get a lot of question of, like, what is an interrobang? <laughs> and uh, it's actually a, a combination of a question mark and the exclamation point, joining the Latin word for question, intero, with a proofreading term for exclamation, coming together, interrobang. Aha. So, so that- There you go. There <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> Couldn't expect the more, uh, more of a uh, scholarly, response, scholarly <laughs> response to that question. It, uh, where did you come across I Call My Brothers? This is a, uh, this is a, a Swedish play, and, and it came here. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, I Call My Brothers. I came across the play about a couple years ago when I did another production of it in Cleveland. And once I was done with that, I came back to Chicago to Interrobang where I'm an ensemble member there. And I told them, we have to do this play. I think it's, it's very timely. It's very visceral. And it's just sort of fed into our uh, uh, mission statement. And so I pitched it to them. And uh, that was a couple of years ago. And now here we are doing this. It's a play written by the Swedish uh, Moroccan player. Tunisian. Swedish Tunisian. Tunisian, Tunisian uh, tu- uh, playwright uh, uh, Jonas Hassan Khamiri. Yes. Uh, and uh, he, he has, has some of his work has been also been produced by Silk Road Rising, I mm-hmm. believe. Uh, but this is really a, a very, very fine work. And, and you guys are getting rave reviews for your acting and your interpretation of it. So Thank you. Uh, you've been just nominated I understand so I have been in the past not in for the past, this yeah, yes, but yeah. the play has been also Jeff recommended yes. right yes yeah well tell us a, a little about your characters in the play um, Gloria who are you well I play we all play several characters in the ensemble other than Salar and we play different um, fixtures of his life as he's going on this identity journey so I play uh, Valeria who is his oldest friend who he spoilers, ends up falling in love with. And we deal with um, what it means to not be reciprocated in those feelings and how to deal with those things and the toxic masculinity that is often associated with rejection in romantic relationships. Um, And I also play a frustrating telemarketer who is at the apex of his story um, narratively. So yeah, that's where I come in. Yeah, and we're also dealing with the issues. Uh, a lot of it revolves around uh, the main character, Amor, who is a young man who is of Arab descent living in Sweden and is dealing with the issues of being under surveillance, obviously, by the national security apparatus, and yet also going through a process of identity search and introspection. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is not really, it's not really certain whether he has done this act or he has not done this act and I don't want to blow the ending of all of this <laughs> but it's really a fascinating journey to be taken through and Salar really takes us in, into a very high energy kind of a process of that identity search it's really a very physically demanding role that he's doing too mm. at the same time 
Why is that? Why is it physically demanding? What, what's going on here? <laughs> well, um, it is just, yeah, emotionally and physically, I would say, right. very demanding. And it's just, um, it, is, uh, it is like a, a, a roller coaster of a ride of, of emotions and physicality this play is. And it just kind of takes, takes us through like, sadness and anger and heartbreak and redemption and it's just a lot. And once the play starts, it's about 85 minutes long, and it does not stop. All of the actors, four actors, are on the stage the whole time, and uh, it's such a, a beautiful but intense ensemble piece. And it is a true machine, and we have to really work together and um, bring all the pieces together. And it's, it is a, it's a beast, but... We seem to be doing okay. I think another reason is our fabulous set designer, um, Eleanor Khan, created a really minimalist, most mostly art installation. So anything world building were created, being created is by us or Solar's, you know, descriptions of things. So a lot of it is the physicality is just not having set pieces and things like that, which I think lends to, you know, serving the language a lot. Yeah. I also run a lot in the show. He does run a lot. Yeah, he show. Does run a lot. Yeah. Well, That's the physicality. Exactly. No, you, you guys imply explosions and furniture is moving around and exactly, all of that. Exactly. Exactly. There was a lot of running yes. through all of this, and it's not really sure if it's being running from a crime scene or is it the running that the spiritually that the character is doing. Mm-hmm. All of these things are kind of implied in it, and it's really a fascinating uh, journey that you guys take us all through. And I highly recommend people seeing it in the uh, last couple of weekends that it's been uh, that it's going to be running here mm-hmm. in Chicago to definitely check it out. Uh, so, uh, but uh, how about uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Gloria about your work and what th- kinds of things you have done in the past? So I. Um I'm an organizer with the U.S. Palestinian Community Network, and we work really closely with the Arab American Action Network. And they've had a youth-led campaign to end racial profiling of Arabs and Muslims for the past six years now. And I thought, what a perfect marriage of this play being about what it means to be surveilled as a person of color in a place as homogenous as Sweden, and what it means to be surveilled in this country in in a post-9-11 world and in the political climate that we're currently living in. And I thought that I could it would be so so lucky and fabulous if we could get the youth to come in and not only see the play and see themselves on stage in a complicated um, rich three-dimensional way but also tell a theater community about what is going on as far as social justice is concerned and so this is happening tomorrow night tomorrow uh, afternoon afternoon after our matinee we'll have um, members of the youth-led organizing program at the AAAN speak about the real-life impacts of being profiled for their religion or how they look and these kids are brilliant like blow you out of the water all right and Solar, tell us a little bit about your own background. My background? Um, well, I am... To the extent you want to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you for that clarification. Um, well, I, um, I'm an Iranian and American actor, and uh, I came to the States in high school, and I started doing theater in college, and that's when I fell in mm-hmm. love with it. And your parents are okay with you being a theater actor? <laughs> your Iranian One, parents. <laughs> 100%. They're the most supportive. Wow, yes. lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, and then I moved to Chicago uh, a few years ago and uh, have been doing theater and uh, just acting in general. Um, 
Now we're talking about the Interrobang Theater Project called I Call My Brothers. It is running through February 2nd at the Rivendell Theater on Northridge Avenue. And um, it's you know, now we've got a, a code for people if we want to have a discount. Uh, people, people can put in Worldview, and, uh, yes. all capital letters or something? Or yes, uh, Worldview, all capital letters, and uh, that will get you half price tickets. Oh, that's great. Yes. And if you go at 3 p.m., you would see the post-show discussion with the uh, Arab American Action Network, and, and that would be cool, too. Absolutely. Um, you've gotten such great reviews for this. Uh, you're, you're acting – the guy in the <laughs> Tribune said you're acting alone was a reason to go. That was pretty good. I, that's what I hear. Yes, uh, that's, that's wonderful. Drop your Iranian humility. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's wonderful. Like I said, you know, I've been involved with bringing this play for so long. So it's just really nice to have a great reception. And, you know, we think it's an important piece. It, yeah. it talks about issues that we really care about, uh, about the immigrant community. Yeah. And uh, so it's really important to us. So it's really, really nice to have a great reception and having people support us. Um, and, yeah, but there was a nice thing they say. It's just wonderful. And it's true. Yeah. You do fantastic work. And I'm just so grateful that the reviews have focused on the the content of the work and not getting caught up in identity politics and actually looking at what it what we're doing on stage and telling human stories is the most important thing, you know. Well, that's one of the strengths of this play. It really is not an identity politics exactly, play. Exactly, exactly. It is about identity. Right. And it's about self-reflection. Exactly. And it's about introspection, but it is not necessarily about, uh, and it's a very honest thing that, yeah. you know, that you contemplate that this character may be a character who didn't do the act, the horrible act. Right. And he is not guilty, but he may yet still have sympathies towards right. the the cause or what and that's at least that's the kind of a nuance that I kind of drew out from from it and and I think those are very healthy things to put out there mm-hmm. uh, into into the public discussion as opposed to the sort of how was he guilty or was he not guilty kind Certainly. of a thing yeah. well, what you say is absolutely true I think that's what I really appreciate about this Jonas's writing because he gives you a, a really you know um, flawed and interesting character as any other character of any other exactly. race or culture, right. because a lot of times with uh, you know characters dealing coming from the Middle Eastern background, a lot of times they're just really good or really bad. It's just you know not very three dimensional, and I think right. Jonas does a really uh, beautiful job of toying with your perception of yeah. is he good, is he bad, and but he's a human being, you Certainly. know, he's complicated. You don't have to be perfect to not be yeah, yeah. guilty of an act of terror, and exactly. I think that is like yeah. a really simple idea that people are walking away with being like, wow. I, I had these implicit biases because of what I know about what I've been told of Middle Eastern folks, and this really screwed with that. Thank you. So that's been a really another wonderful response we've gotten, mm-hmm. which is how, a testament to your performance. How far do you get with – if you raise awareness and you, people think about their biases more, does that ever – I mean, what does that do for us? Does that end up stopping racial profiling? We've got such voluminous accounts of uh, profiling – how does that work? I think it's a, it's an interesting line because I hesitate to say that we as Arabs or Muslims or whatever you know demographic you may be a part of, I, I don't want to say that we have to prove our humanity because that is problematic. But I think putting human stories and and forcing almost people to see that, my immigrant mother is just like your mother from here. Mm. 
and that is the the base level I think which can crack at the really really hard you know granite structure that is racism in this country. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's also about getting people more comfortable with making nuanced judgments as opposed Certainly. to these harsh mm-hmm. categories of oh, you're Middle Eastern, you're a potential terrorist. You know, right. While really st- starting to understand every human being uh, for making nuanced judgments about every human being mm-hmm. as opposed to categorizing them or profiling them, as they say. I have to add that the play is really also about community and how the community deals with this internalized Absolutely. trauma. And also that it is also quite, quite funny as well and fun. And uh, so it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Salar Artabelli is the Chicago actor who is the lead in I Call My Brothers. And Gloria Petrelli is a Chicago-based actor and social justice organizer who helped bring the Arab American Action Network to tomorrow's uh, uh, preview at 3 o'clock, the 3 o'clock show. And you can check it out at Rivendale Theater on Northridge Avenue through February 2nd. Thank you all for joining us and uh, talking about I Call My Brothers. Nari, great seeing you. It's great to be here again. uh, Thanks very much to Steve Bynum and Julian Haida for producing this program and Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.